Okay, welcome. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSC. Um, I'm Nick Kitchen from LSC Ideas, um, and I'd like to welcome you to this roundtable after Snowden, which is co-sponsored by the Monk School of Global, Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. A couple of quick admin points before we start. First of all, we have a Twitter hashtag for this event, as you might expect. Um, I'm sure there'll be some vigorous debate in the Twitter room, so please get on that. Um, Second, this week is LSE Student Union's RAG Week, um, collecting money through a load of excellent activities, including uh, the Rowing Club, have rowed from London to Edinburgh, um, there's a pie-eating competition, and something called the Crackers and Whipped Cream Contest. Um, you don't need to do any of these things, but there will be students with buckets collecting outside the event, so please give generously. They're supporting Spires, a small homeless shelter in South London, Into University, which helps children from disadvantaged backgrounds get into university, um, and War Child, who, as many of you know, among other things, create child-friendly areas in war zones. So please do give generously if you can. On to our debate this evening, um, which we've been thinking about for, for quite some time. Um, and there's so many facets, I think, to these debates that were raised by Edward Snowden's actions, um, that we started off really struggling to come up with, with a title as to what to call this. So we picked after Snowden because it was deliberately vague, uh, so you don't know what you're getting, um, but also because we wanted to get past the kind of headline controversy itself and really think about um, the conversations we need to have about the role of the internet in our societies. Now, many, most of the students in this audience um, we've never lived in a world without the internet. It's um, a fundamental enabling feature of our lives. And yet it is so recent our social contract really doesn't account for it or reflect that reality. Um, so we need to have a conversation about who's empowered to do what uh, online, about legitimate authority, about security, and about liberty, and I hope we'll be able to address some of those topics this evening. Um, let me introduce speakers. Um, in the middle, Ron Debert is Director of the Canada Centre for Global Security Studies and the System Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs. Uh, Sir David Omond on the far left is Visiting Professor at King's College and a former Director at GCHQ. In the pink... Gus uh, Hussain is an executive director at Privacy International. And on the screen, um, because unfortunately he can't be with us in person tonight, um, Ron Person is professor of history and director of international partnerships and research at Monk School. Ron, can you hear me? I can. Yes. <laughs> can we hear you? Can you hear me? We can. Yes. So Ron can hear us. We can hear Ron. The NSA can hear all of us. Um, <laughs> we're ready to start. Let's go. And um, we'll kick off with Ron. Okay, great. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction and for inviting me here. And uh, to all of you for coming out. I'm, I'm, it's always inspiring to be here uh, in London and particular at LSE. Um, you know, there are so many issues related to the Snowden disclosures. Um, that we could spend hours talking about them. But I thought, it, since I was opening the panel, I would take a step back and, and look at some major trends that are uh, shaping the contents, context for cyberspace and, and security 
Uh, think of these as tectonic forces. In other words, they're, they're factors regardless of the Snowden disclosures. They were there before. They're, they're going to be there afterwards. They're largely irreversible. And like tectonic forces, they're going to produce major change in society. Um, we, could sh- we could shape the contours of them, but we can't really put a halt to them. And there are three of them. So I'm going to go through those, what I see as the three most important ones, shaping cyberspace security today. Uh, the first is, is a, an obvious one, and it's related to the changes we're going through in information and communication technology. I think it's fair to say that we're probably going through the most far-reaching change in, in information technology and in the communications environment in all of human history, uh, really in the last uh, 10 years, especially with social media, cloud computing, and mobile. There are many different differences between those technologies, but they share one very important characteristic, and that's the amount of personally identifiable private information, information that used to be in our desktops or filing cabinets, even in our heads, uh, that we now share with third parties. Most of those third parties are private companies. Uh, Many of them are private companies that are headquartered in jurisdictions other than the ones in which we are citizens. And that's a profound change. We're really turning our lives inside out. So this sharing of data includes not just data that we're conscious of and deliberate about, like the texts we send and the emails we send and the images we post on Instagram, but a far, uh, a lot more uh, uh, data about data, data about our movements, our social relationships, our preferences, our habits. Now, it's important to underscore that data do not disappear. Uh, They sit there on the servers, on the infrastructure of the private companies that own and operate uh, cyberspace. What is done with that data? With whom is it shared? Um, That is a decision for the companies to make, and it's usually buried in their terms of service uh, that very few of us actually read. And I think this really underscores an important point about the so-called universe of big data that we now live in, and that is the physical geography of cyberspace really matters. Where a company is headquartered is very important. The where of technology is as important as the what. And of course this change has just happened in a few short years. The other big change is what I would call the big state, the rise of the big state in cyberspace. So this is a bit of a simplification, but if you go back 20 years uh, and did a survey, most governments had very uh, no internet policy to speak of whatsoever. And those that did, uh, it was deliberately laissez-faire, hands-off approach. Fast forward to today, and not only do governments have internet policies, but cybersecurity is at the top of the agenda by their own admission. I think this would have been an inevitable outcome of all of the security externalities of having everything connected from critical infrastructure, uh, like electronic grids and hospitals, to the Internet of Things, But as often happens in human history, there was a very important punctuation point uh, that accelerated the involvement of governments in cyberspace, and that was, of course, 9-11. We still live in the the shadow of 9-11 when it comes to cyberspace security. (coughs) Among other things, what happened at that time is, is it really illustrated or underscore a shift in the threat environment that was happening uh, since the end of the Cold War, but, but which 9-11 really illustrated, and that is a movement away uh, in terms of concerns governments had with the primary security threat being other governments to an all-of-society approach. And accompanying of, uh, of that at the same time was a shift in 
in how intelligence agencies operate to uh, collecting the entire haystack, collecting as much information as possible. Another important turning point was the definition of cyberspace as a domain, especially in military thinking, uh, which happened in the mid-2000s. Uh, military uh, perception began to see cyberspace as a domain equal to land, sea, air, and space, uh, which in turn uh, brought about uh, increasing competition, the standing up of uh, armed forces dedicated to fighting and winning wars in cyberspace, and as often happens in international affairs, an arms race in this domain as well. A, a side point here is you have a very interesting political economy dynamic when you look at the world of big data and, and big states. And that is they have the same functional needs or requirements um, that are served by often the same companies. So you have facial recognition uh, uh, companies uh, servicing both Facebook on the one hand and CIA on the other. Uh, mobile app ad analytics for, uh, as another example. Um, so you have kind of big data meeting big brother and a combination or confluence of forces. The third big trend that is also irreversible is one that's often overlooked in the West, and that is there is a major demographic shift going on in cyberspace. The, the center of cyberspace gravity is shifting from the north and the west of the planet, where the technology was first invented, to the south and the east. Uh, the vast majority of internet users today don't come from the United Kingdom or Canada or the United States. They come from the global south. And that's very important to keep in mind because uh, most of these states are uh, either authoritarian states or autocratic states, failed, fragile states. In many of them, religion plays a very important role in public policy and governance. Um, many of them, if they are democracies, are sliding back now into authoritarianism. And I think if we're thinking about the future of cyberspace, especially around security issues and surveillance issues, it's important to keep that in mind because the standards uh, that we rely on, the technologies that we use, will be uh, determined by those countries and those populations moving forward, just as the early technologies were influenced by Silicon Valley innovation. Now, those, as I said, those trends, uh, I think, are largely irreversible. And when you throw into the mix the Snowden revelations, uh, it's interesting to ask, well, what will the implications be? And I can see, uh, in, in terms of the community of which I'm a part, there have been many positive uh, implications, and I could go on about those, but I want to focus on some unintended negative consequences that I see happening that should concern us. And again, neatly, there are three. <laughs> so uh, the first is th there, there has been a kind of vacuum uh, created by uh, the disclosures in terms of uh, attention on and pressure on many of the countries that I was just speaking of, the autocratic regimes, authoritarian regimes. If you think back prior to the Snowden disclosures, there was a lot of attention on Chinese espionage. Uh, if you recall, just prior to the Snowden disclosures, uh, there was an indictment of uh, individuals in China who were involved in Chinese espionage. Um, there was a, a pro high-profile report released by a company called Mandiant. Uh, likewise, in the international arena, around international governance of the Internet, uh, there was a, a, a battle going on between countries that supported internet freedom and those that preferred a more 
state-down, state-led, top-down approach. And I think after the Snowden disclosures, of course, the legitimacy and credibility of the so-called Internet freedom countries, United States, UK, Canada, and others, has really been called into question. And I think that's relieved some of the pressure on some of these other countries, and they've been able to move into this area and uh, be more assertive about their interests and promoting norms that, uh, uh, that they would like to see uh, be more widely adopted in the international arena. A second uh, unintended negative consequence is around the area of technological sovereignty. So a reaction to the Snowden disclosures that we've seen, and it's, I think a natural, reasonable one, is that many policymakers and others have reacted by saying that we need to develop our own technological systems, avoid U.S. Uh, manufactured technology, and uh, build essentially a cordon that will protect us from GCHQ and NSA. Um, now, I think, it's, I think it's largely foolhardy, in my opinion, to take that step. But it, when you look at it, I think that um, what it's done is it, it's allowed governments to uh, and policymakers to do what in the past would have labeled them as a pariah, to put in place nationalized controls uh, and put forward arguments like uh, data localization, the hosting of data inside their jurisdictions, which allows it to be uh, more subject to nationalized controls. So one country's data localization is another's national censor censorship regime. The last uh, unintended consequence that I'm seeing uh, I would, in, in abbreviation, say something along the lines of, I want my own NSA. So if you look at uh, the disclosures, I, I think what they've done is essentially provide a model or a template for other countries to follow. And of course, not every country, especially countries in the global south, have the same resources and capabilities to stand up something like this. Um, so we're seeing now a market for digital surveillance emerging, stepping into this area, providing essentially a kind of espionage as a service. And uh, in, the, in the Citizen Lab, what we have seen is, is these capabilities being turned on uh, citizens and NGOs and civil society. Uh, we have uh, numerous reports that uh, identify the proliferation of this type of spyware. And, and so you're seeing... Uh, uh, capabilities being put in the hands of governments that I think are uh, disturbing. Um, so what are we going to do about this? Uh, let me conclude by saying that, uh, you know, in order to uh, mitigate some of these um, consequences moving forward and keeping in mind there are some trends that we just uh, can't reverse, I think, first of all, uh, it underscores the need for a credible narrative among the liberal democratic countries about security, rights, and freedom. Um, and I don't think we're there yet at all. I see a lot of polarizing debate going on. Um, a lot, there, there's a lot of uh, argument at the extreme. And I, and I think we don't need to invent anything new here. There's some basic principles that go back all the way to ancient Greece that are the heart of security in a liberal democratic environment that we need to remind ourselves and practice what we preach. Things like mutual restraint, division of power, checks and balances and oversight and so on. Part of this has to entail clearly distinguished roles for signals intelligence, defense, 
and law enforcement agencies. I think David's going to talk a bit about that in his comments, but I would say that uh, the, the roles and responsibilities between these different agencies have largely blurred over the last 10 years, while at the same time uh, these agencies have ballooned in terms of their capabilities, there's been a kind of overreach. Um, and a good example of that, I think, is in terms of the, the negative consequences of this, is you see um, agencies whose primary responsibility is around war fighting, uh, engaging in breaking things, being also uh, given responsibility for securing infrastructure. So there's a kind of institutional split personality there that I think is quite damaging in the long run that we need to separate out. For example, hoarding of zero days, requiring backdoors by uh, design, and it's, it's very lively discussion here in the United Kingdom about weakening or uh, weakening encryption or preventing uh, uh, people from using encryption without some kind of backdoor for government. I think we need to uh, really closely examine issues of oversight, review, public accountability. If you look across the liberal democracies, you have a very mixed picture. Um, uh, in my country, for example, in Canada, there really is no meaningful oversight when it comes to how our signals intelligence agency operates. It's by far the worst of the five eyes. Uh, it is accountability and oversight within the security tent. Uh, our signals intelligence agency does not report at all to parliament. There's no parliamentary committees that look into uh, what the signals intelligence agency is doing. Um, and I think that that needs to change. And finally, we need to extend oversight and accountability to the private sector as well. And again, here, there's a mixed record. I think you've seen some companies come out more transparently, talk about the type of requests that, that are made uh, for us user data. Others are still stuck in an old paradigm. Um, and I think talk of special compacts made between countries and companies is disastrous in terms of the, the normative precedent that this would set for the rest of the world. Um, so I'll end there and look forward to my colleagues' comments and more discussion with all of you. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Uh, David's next up. Right. Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for the invitation. It's good to be here. Um, the material that... Uh, Edward Snowden downloaded from the U.S. National Security Agency and the 58,000-odd top-secret documents he stole from our own GCHQ have earned the journalists concerned a Pulitzer Prize. That is not what I'm going to talk about. I want to talk about the unresolved public policy issue that this has raised. Like all wicked public policy issues, there are several dimensions to the problem, or levels to the problem. And these levels interact, and they have conflicting priorities. If we optimize on only one dimension or one level, the result will be unexpected and probably unwelcome consequences on the others. So it's a problem that needs to be tackled as a whole. And in this case, in this problem, I see three levels. There's the everyday level of the internet. This is where we worry about the confidentiality of our personal information, which Ron has mentioned, 
Uh, we worry about the security of our financial transactions. We worry about the integrity of the Internet as, as a whole. The second level is the law enforcement level, where responsibility lies for policing the Internet, an important task given the huge threats from terrorist and criminal activity, including cyber criminality. And the third level is the secret intelligence level, where the secret intelligence agencies have to fulfill their national security mission, including supporting the operations of our armed forces and of our diplomacy. And that includes, of course, armed forces operations in NATO. It includes uh, diplomacy in the European Union, such as the uh, uh, common action uh, against Russia in terms of sanctions, or the negotiations with Iran over the nuclear program. These are just examples where the secret intelligence level has to deliver uh, secret intelligence. Now, there are conflicts between the requirements of these three levels, and those conflicts cannot be wished away, and they can only be managed. One of the ways that they can be managed is by having an agreed legal and ethical framework to reassure the public that what is being done is both necessary and proportionate and, for example, that it does not amount to mass surveillance. And I hardly will no doubt debate this later, that the independent court has recently issued its judgment reaffirming there is no mass surveillance going on in the UK although, of course, GCHQ does have bulk access to the Internet, a very different thing from mass surveillance. But let me just say a word or two about the top layer, communicating, entertaining, sharing, trading. As Ron has said, information that we all consider very personal is shared and stored at this level. Financial and commercial transactions that must be secure are conducted here, despite the constant attacks from cyber criminals. And the more advanced a country is, in terms of its dependence on digital technologies, the greater the vulnerability of its infrastructure to cyber attacks that could come from any part of the globe. So I am in favor of good security, including strong encryption for that layer. The second layer, supporting this everyday activity, and trying to police the worst abuses on the Internet is law enforcement. It's trying to tackle the terrorists, the cyber criminals, the proliferators, the narcotics gangs, the criminal groups, the people smugglers, and all the rest of them. And to protect us, the authorities have the right to seek information about suspects, terrorists and criminals of all sorts, under the conditions that we in society legislate for and oversee. And that includes, when necessary, giving the police the right to seek access to the pattern and content of those communications. And whether it's trying to locate a missing schoolgirl, test an alibi, or uncover a terrorist assassination plot, access to communications data is the most important investigative tool the police say they have. And it's been used in 95% of all serious organized crime cases handled by the Crown Prosecution uh, service. At the law enforcement level, there is international cooperation. There's MLAT for those who follow uh, the, the, the whole uh, concept of uh, mutual assistance. 
There's advanced passenger information being shared. There are watch lists, liaison on terrorists, and so on through Interpol and Europol. But there are growing and serious problems for law enforcement at this second level. Let me just mention some of them. The volume of crime on the Internet is running far ahead of the capacity of law enforcement to deal with it. The tools or exploits you need for cybercrime can be bought from specialist hacking specialists. You don't have to be a cyber specialist to conduct cybercrime anymore. You just go on the dark net and, and buy the tools. The victims and the offenders are no longer in the same police area or even the same jurisdiction, and that makes policing and dealing with victims extremely difficult. The worst cyber criminals are overseas in jurisdictions that won't respect a mutual assistance warrant anyway. The advent of digital technology makes the whole business of obtaining communications data and warranted communication much harder. And even where the companies want to cooperate, they may be physically unable to do so uh, because of the way the Internet is structured. And they, they look to governments like our own to legislate, to make their legal position absolutely clear. Many of the, and uh, Ron has mentioned this, many of the modern Internet service providers are located overseas. There are clashes of jurisdiction. There are conflicts over the definition of what counts as criminal behavior. Uh, there's difficulty in getting access to encrypted material on mobile devices. Even if you manage to seize one from a terrorist, can you get into it? The companies have made it too difficult. And then finally, there's the sheer diversity of all those apps which can be used for communication. So it was probably inevitable that the police would turn to the third level, the national intelligence level, for support in tackling terrorism and serious crime. Now, we should therefore recognize that there is this third level of activity, which is the work of the national intelligence agencies. Their main role is national security, supporting our armed forces and our diplomacy, trying to find out what ISIL is up to in Syria and Iraq whether the Russian paramilitaries in eastern Ukraine are under direction of Russia. Questions like that, which are really important uh, if we're actually going to have the right diplomatic uh, response. And, of course, uncovering state-sponsored cyber attacks for which some sophisticated electronic espionage is necessary. Now, in the UK, we have already legislated as a society many years ago to allow our intelligence agencies to work on serious crime and to respond to requests from uh, law enforcement. We can discuss this. Snowden has made that task much harder. I think that's indisputable. The embarrassment, let's call it an embarrassment, of the Merkel affair for the U.S. government has led the U.S. president to a rather interesting statement. He has directed his intelligence community not to monitor the communications of heads of state and government, close friends and allies, unless 
he adds, there is compelling national security purpose. Any other prime minister or president would say exactly the same. At the, there is no international law regulating intelligence activity, although we have domestic law that regulates it quite tightly. And there is never going to be international law regulating intelligence activity because nations will never agree on what its boundaries are, how it's defined, and many nations still deny they conduct it. Now, traditionally, this third level, secret intelligence level, was hidden uh, from everyday sight. It was unavowed and largely unregulated. And it is remarkable that in the UK, in advance of all our European partners, we decided over 20 years ago to legislate for our intelligence agencies, put them on a statutory footing, oversee them and regulate them um, by law. Not all nations have adopted that model. Uh, I need only mention Russia and China as two. The legislation takes into account the European Convention on Human Rights. It recognizes the Balancing Act that uh, uh, personal privacy is a qualified right and has to be balanced against other rights that the citizen has. And the principles of proportionality and necessity, for example, are burnt into the legislation, so the agencies have to apply those principles. Should we mind that the computer of one of these agencies is capable of accessing Internet information in bulk when legally authorised to find the specific material on the targets that they are warranted to go after, the terrorist network, and covering new members of the network, trying to find out if the Charlie Hebdo murderers actually had accomplices? Should we worry that the computers are going through the data in order to find the specific things they are looking for? I do not call that mass surveillance. The judges don't call that mass surveillance. The court has said that is not mass surveillance. It's the opposite. It's targeted surveillance. But in an internet world, if you do not have the access to the haystack, as it were, with your magnet, you will never pull out the needle. And the real safeguard we've got there is that the sentient human analyst is only allowed to see what the Home Secretary's warrant or the Foreign Secretary's certificate allows them to see the needle, not the haystack. And that certificate or warrant, incidentally, has to, by law, apply the necessity and proportionality test. So, to sum up, I am concerned we're in the middle of a form of moral panic over surveillance and that we are failing to see the problem as a whole. Uh, the privacy campaigners are very rightly concerned about the first level, about the privacy of our personal data. But if we optimize the solution only to look after our personal data, then we make the problem for law enforcement impossible, and we deprive our armed forces and our diplomacy of the support that they need. So we've got to come up with a solution to this public policy problem because it's the same devices, the same IP protocol, the same mobile devices that everyone is using now. It's not in society's interest 
to confine the debate only to personal privacy. And that would, in any case, be an absurdity because we cannot simply domestically uh, uh, legislate our way out of this. It's an international issue. Uh, We have to allow the law enforcement the tools to enable them to find the suspects. I saw a reference recently to we must only, uh, the, the authorities must only track or surveil, as it were, the guilty. They, anyone who has watched uh, a TV thriller or read a detective novel will know that all detection involves the elimination of the innocent in order to find out finally who is guilty. So we have to accept that law enforcement and the intelligence agencies will be looking at their uh, targets, the old, who uh, was in <coughs> communication with the terrorist network or the criminal network, and eliminating. That's what detectives do. But you can't say, you can't have a rule that says, as it were, only the guilty get uh, uh, surveilled because you don't know who's guilty till you've done at least some of the surveillance. But that is not, repeat, not an argument for mass surveillance, which, as I say, is unlawful at the moment and should remain unlawful. Thank you. Thanks, David. Gus. It's, uh, it's good to be back at the LSC. I don't know if you, the audience knows, but there's a rich history for the LSC in this domain. Um, back in 1996, when the government of the day in this country uh, wanted to make it practically impossible for anybody to communicate securely, um, and the policy looked set to become law, um, the LSC organized an event that, in this actual theater, and this theater was booked out. Every seat was taken. We were expecting maybe 50 to 100 people. It, we had people outside being angry for not getting in to sit down to talk through these issues. And it scared the government of the day, and it made the opposition at the time say, when we come to power, we'll do things differently. Unfortunately, they came to power, and a year later, we had to organize another such event at the LSC because uh, the new government was very much acting like the old government. Um, And the LSC hosted subsequently six of these events over time. And fortunately, policy uh, did get better for a while until Snowden came along, we realized it hadn't. But let me um, me just backtrack for a second. In the past, in this this idyllic past, pre- computers. In order for a government entity to know your friends, your family, or your associates, they had to resort to tactics of asking you, asking people who know you, or coercive powers. And as a result, we created safeguards. We said they shall not come into your home. They can only question you in certain ways. There are limits to the state power. And just to add a spin to that, in these halcyon days, in these old days before computers came along, if a foreign government wanted to know something about you, if this foreign government wanted to know every place you'd been, if they wanted to know every friend you've ever had, if they wanted to know all your family members, they wanted to know all your associates, they would have had to ask your government to do all that stuff. And there were safeguards, and there were agreements, and everything was supposed to, be, supposed to have been done relatively carefully, unless you resort to the James Bond type of infiltration. But apart from that, you still had rights, even against your government and a foreign government. 
the digital era has changed that radically. And what we started noticing in the 1990s were the laws that were being drafted to update these safeguards that had been established hundreds of years before, whether it's the Fourth Amendment in the United States or the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, of 1947, 1948. They were relatively stable up until the 1990s when we started to see these real oddities. It started in the UK law. Um, and then it moved to U.S. law in 2008, uh, 2007, 2008, because there were a number of laws that were passed around the time. And one of my colleagues, Casper Bowden, um, he's one of the only people who ever noticed these, these absurdities in the laws where they established tr um, strange jurisdictions. They said uh, a communication external to a country can be treated differently than a communication internal to a country. They, they said that if you are not a citizen of this country, your data is not as protected as other people's. And nobody really paid attention to this except for a few of my colleagues. And whenever they raised it, they were told, oh, don't be ridiculous, you're being paranoid. Until Snowden came out. And he gave us the evidence of why these laws were drafted with such great care to draw these distinctions in order to make what they were doing legal. And what they were doing, let's, because what's interesting, um, it's hard to do this at a session like this, but we actually haven't really discussed some of the things that Snowden has disclosed. Let me just choose some of, well, my favorite. Um, mass collection of everybody's transactions, uh, whether it's uh, the GCHQ's Tempora program and GCHQ's ambition to collect it all. They literally have that in their slides. They want to collect it all. It all is our lives, all of our information. And the upstream program in the United States where they do essentially the same thing and then they share all this information back and forth. There's uh, the transnational aspect of surveillance from the Snowden disclosures. Uh, there's the Mystic program where the governments have the capability of spying on all the content and metadata of an entire country not just <clears throat> targeting a small group of, of terrorists over here, not just looking at a certain network of problematic people, collecting and storing and analyzing the data of an entire country at a moment in time. Getting access to fiber optic cables and peeling data out of there. And the one that made industry particularly irate was this graphic that was drawn of, uh, of I believe it was Google's data center saying, Google's data center over here is encrypted. Google's data center over here is encrypted, and yet the fiber optic line that links that, GCHQ put with a, with a nice smiley face, isn't encrypted. And so they went after G, uh, Google's fibers in the middle and got access to Google's cables. That royally pissed off Google. And so companies responded. But let's, let's, I haven't stopped my list. Um, another uh, Snowden disclosure was the level of exploitation of networks being done by the intelligence agencies. Um, they have whole programs aimed at going after system, uh, system administrators of companies uh, and of networks generally because they believe those individuals are the ones that hold the keys to the traffic on the entire network. For example, in the case of Belgacom, uh, Belgian telecommunications company was hacked. And uh, it took them four days to reconstruct their systems. When they finally discovered that they were hacked, that they could um, get rid of the vulnerability that was put in place, by, it seems, GCHQ. Um, and then there's exploitation of a whole different level of, of what Ron uh, referred to very briefly as zero days. That is, every single one of our devices are um, insecure inherently because there's a flaw in the code, and they find the flaws in these code, and they exploit them instead of telling 
the manufacturer of your hardware that maybe you should fix the flaw because any government on this planet or any malicious hacker on this planet could also get access to your device and exploit it. And then finally, one of my favorites was the capabilities of analysis that became clear. Um, one of the more interesting slides is uh, a program called Squeaky Dolphin, which is a UK um, program. And the slide showed how they exploited Facebook data and how they were able to run queries against Facebook data. Please identify everybody in South London who likes cricket. That was one of the searches. Please identify everybody who liked a news story about the, uh, the resignation of the defense secretary in this country. That was a GCHQ slide. That's them going after terrorism. That's them going after Russia and China. No, that's them mucking about with great capabilities. But the law is supposed to be there to protect us and to make sure that nothing goes wrong. The latest disclosure from yesterday was that uh, journalists' communications were being collected and analyzed um, and held up in slides as showing what kind of uh, BBC journalists, Guardian journalists, Washington Post journalists, this was the type of uh, communication that was actually being analyzed. And then there's um, even non-Snowden-related news. The Drug Enforcement Agency in the U.S., uh, it's been disclosed just in the past week, although it was disclosed earlier but not noticed, that they had created a secret database of all international phone calls going out of the United States. And even more importantly than just collecting all this information, they were self-authorizing access to it rather than going through the other legal channels that tend to involve courts uh, and due process. Um, but the greatest challenge we have um, is the, the challenge of, it's the epistemological challenge of surveillance and secret surveillance and surveillance done by intelligence agencies. We've crafted our laws in such a way that they are outside of the traditional oversight. As Ron was saying, the Canadian intelligence agency has particular uh, challenges there. It's, it's really hard to know what is knowable. It is really hard to know what it is that they can do, so how do you actually regulate it? How can an MP in Parliament reasonably regulate the conduct of an intelligence agency that can decide what it discloses about itself? So that's why you need a Snowden to come along to say they do not, the, 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 the directors and the lawyers within the, these agencies have not been doing their job of disclosure. I am going to assist that, and that's how he's done a, a significant uh, benefit to society as, uh, as a result of that. But... Let me just focus directly on this question of encryption that David Cameron raised uh, a couple of weeks ago in response to the Paris attacks, because it really outlines, and um, David Amman's entirely right, we have some very difficult choices to make, and there isn't a clear-cut solution through these, but let me just try to explain very briefly. David Cameron said... Uh, a, about a week and a half ago, that there should be no place on the Internet where uh, terrorists can go and hide. There should be no room in the, in the Internet, in the equivalent um, of real space, where they can communicate in secret. And it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting point. Um, and it's been repeated just today by the former head of uh, MI6, saying that uh, the government must always be able to have access to our communications. Um, the challenge is, well, the first challenge is which government are we talking about? Is it this government? Is it some foreign government that wants to have access? And second, the reason it's harder now is because GCHQ and the NSA got caught. They got caught hacking into Google's infrastructures. They got caught 
mucking around with um, Apple's infrastructure or they, uh, the whole PRISM program, which is still very badly understood. Um, these companies did not like being associated or anywhere near these types of programs, particularly because they have a global user base and being friendly with any intelligence agency at a domestic or a national level just isn't in their interest, so they started securing their infrastructure. And we would expect that they would do so as well because these are our devices and our information. I kind of get annoyed when people refer to my personal information as hay. Hay is what horses eat. Um, but nonetheless, there are tough choices ahead because if David Cameron and the UK government, and I highly doubt the US government will go down this, this route, but if the UK government uh, wants to stop this from happening, they have to tell Apple, they have to tell Google, stop building security into your products. And Google and Apple are going to have to say, fine, because you asked so nicely, we're not going to do this. The second option um, is that they remove security through national policy um, and then store everything domestically, which is a kind of um, localization uh, policy that Ron was talking about. But it would be the equivalent of every time you connect to Google to do Gmail, the UK government would intercept the login process, essentially, and insert itself into that entire process. So everything that goes to Google, that would normally go encrypted, would go essentially via the UK government, and they would store, record everything, or get your ISP to do that. That's like asking the LSC to record every single transaction that you undertake, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Gmail, and store it right here just in case GCHQ or local law enforcement wants access to it. The third option is to remove security by in a more targeted way, uh, forcing companies to tell you, hey, you have a new update on your phone, please download this update, and that update actually defeats all the security on your phone. Again, companies would be pretty stupid to allow their security updating process to be infiltrated in that way or co-opted in that way by the nation state because, again, you have to ask which nation state is asking for which device to actually be compromised. And then there's the last option, which is uh, to remove security by actually directly hacking these devices. And this goes back to what I was, uh, I was referring to as uh, O days or zero days. That is, GCHQ can do all the research in the world to look at Apple's iOS devices and say, oh, you know what? We found a flaw. So we're going to exploit that flaw for the next six months. In the old days, the GCHQs and the NSAs, their jobs were to make sure that their citizens' information was kept secure, so they would be expected to notify Apple, hey, our ministers or our politicians or our GPs or our citizens generally use your devices and they're now at risk from malicious hackers. We think you should update your security. They're not going to do that anymore. They're going to harvest these vulnerabilities. They're going to treat them like arms, pull them out whenever they need them, and they'll use them in a widespread manner. This won't necessarily be targeted. We've already seen uh, through the amazing work that Ron's lab has done about how the industry-level solutions that get sold to uh, the Global South, how these are deployed on a very wide scale already. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there, but just by saying one final point. We, we've led terribly, by, by example, when it comes to the capabilities that have been deployed in secret. And the, the domestic industry that has arisen to sell surveillance technology around the world, which is for, fortunately being tracked by Ron's team. It's about time that, being back at the LSE thinking about it, it's about time we get the UK and get the US back on creating these standard safeguards that every other country should look to and say, you know what, the, this, these guys got caught and they're going to do things right now. 
that would be an interesting debate because we have some really, really hard choices to make. It isn't going to be a complete win for privacy, and it certainly won't be a complete win for security, but something interesting will finally come out of it. Thank you. Thanks, Gus. Um, I think now we're going to turn to Ron. I don't know whether... Do I need to make it go big? Um, Ron. Okay. Go ahead. Yep. All right. Thank you. Uh, good. Thanks. Uh, th thanks first to, uh, to Nick for, uh, uh, for helping to arrange this. Uh, I'm sorry I was not able at the, uh, at the last minute to be there with you uh, in, in person. Uh, in particular, I uh, was primarily uh, concerned about not being able to, uh, to meet face-to-face -face with what, were, what the audience already knows were three, uh, three wonderful uh, presenters here. I must say, Nick, your comment about student activities also made me have one other regret, and that is I'm notorious in my family circle for my capacity to eat pie. Um, so that uh, it, it wouldn't have been a bad idea to be there uh, to, uh, to, to lend support to the students in that, uh, in that particular effort. Um, I want to uh, just briefly uh, talk, um, coming at this from a somewhat different direction. Um, Ron, Gus, David, much more expert in, in some of the, uh, the technical issues and policy uh, questions specifically connected with, uh, with surveillance and the rules of cyberspace and, and the like. I come at it from a little bit further uh, away, but I think sometimes it's helpful to have somebody uh, with a little bit of distance uh, approach the, uh, the, the same questions. And in particular, um, I want to focus on just one component of what was part of the announcement of this event and that Nick referred to in his introductory remarks as well. And that is the, the component which asked what kinds of conversations do we need to have about the rules of cyberspace. And one example of a conversation I want to highlight is one which would begin to map the context in which the surveillance appetites of governments have burgeoned in recent years. Why is it that the United States has been giving such shocking free reign to policies like uh, the NSA's surveillance operations? Why do some other governments feel the same or similar or even more extreme hungers conceivably? Far from least, as many of you uh, present at, uh, in, in that theater will know, uh, certainly the government of the, uh, of the United Kingdom. Context is important. Uh, it tells you something, uh, for instance, when those of us who are kickstarting this evening's discussions are doing so at a public event hosted by uh, the London School of Economics, as opposed to, for instance, participating in an invitation-only briefing at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. There is value in better understanding the nature of the arena or context in which an Edward Snowden once worked. When we can give ourselves at least glimpses, in particular, of the motivations of policymakers, with the glimpses supplementing our grasp of the consequences of policymaker choices. It is also ultimately necessary to keep the why question in mind as we explore context. We can treat a headache with aspirin or a nap, for example, but repeated headaches require investigation of their sources if danger is to be remedied or reduced. 
So why have governments appetites for surveillance intensified to the point where we debate an erosion of civil rights and liberties? If I zero in on the U.S. example, which is closest to the terrain of my own work, uh, I'd want to highlight a few key factors, not three of them like the other Ron from Toronto, uh, I suppose two key factors that I would point to uh, in this respect. First, uh, it would be impossible ultimately to discount the significance of evolving technology. In particular, the impulse to do more simply because you've developed the tools that allow it. The expanding reach and depth of surveillance technology, after all, emerges at some level uh, from an innate human curiosity and an appetite for adventurism. As with many technological advances, there is also an inevitable link with the common human desire for increasing power and control. Sometimes power and control over ourselves, more often, I think, over nature or other people. This is not even a remotely Snowden era or post-Snowden era phenomenon, of course. Think back to the history of almost any empire. Think back to the insights of Shakespeare and Machiavelli, of Kafka and Orwell, of Gramsci and Foucault. Recall, with a sense of irony, I think, because of its American grounding, the concerns of a Thomas Jefferson or a James Madison. Madison wrote in the 1790s, quote, as a man is said to have a right to his property, he may equally be said to have a property in his rights. Where an excess of power prevails, property of no sort is duly respected. No man is safe in his opinions, his person, his faculties, or his possessions, unquote. Advances in surveillance technology have given such threats to safety, Madison-like uh, threats to safety, freer reign and greater scope, it seems to be. Just as 19th century developments in transportation and communication turbocharged international trade and investment impulses, into the intensive globalization we know and live with in the 21st century. Another answer to the question of why there has been an increase of US government appetite for surveillance would stretch this initial point about technology and human nature. There are particular aspects of human nature in particular circumstances that predispose policymakers to particular choices, sometimes to particularly problematic choices. Just one example here because of a limit in time. I draw the example from my own current work on recent US foreign policy and what I see as some seriously problematic, even dangerous behaviors. Behaviors that certainly include invasive surveillance but also the deeply troubling and expanding use of drones and even torture as foreign policy tools. At the risk of oversimplifying because of time constraints, I will say that one reason why problematic and dangerous policy choices have become more common is the way shifting geographic, geostrategic, and geoeconomic circumstances have led both U.S. leaders and U.S. citizens to be fearful 
of losing power and status. The objective realities of at least relative decline for the United States, evident both internally and externally, create a psychological and political climate, a context, within which anxiety and or anger intensify the impulse to act in risky ways. In the world of gambling, this would involve what is called doubling down. In the world of brain function research, cognitive scientists refer to the sometimes, often, deleterious power of loss aversion, with conscious and unconscious desperation nibbling away at prudence or indeed gouging out the analytical heart of prudence. I don't find it unreasonable to suggest that both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama presidencies have been demonstrating the power and consequences of shaping policy in such an environment, and that the readiness to use torture and drones and the enthusiasm for invasive surveillance are important examples. To conclude for the moment, pending the conversation and questions, we need to have the rules, we need about the conversations we need to have about the rules of cyberspace. There are those which examine the reasons behind or beneath the behaviors we are analyzing and or criticizing, and about the nature of the context within which those reasons emerge. Sometimes such conversations need to be held in public fora, like this one, to make people more sensitive to what is going on around them and to the questions that need to be asked. Sometimes, on the other hand, we need to make policymakers and leaders engage more systematically in that dialogue. We have things to tell them about the dangers and unacceptability of excess, for instance and about other short-term and longer-term consequences of their policy choices. Sometimes those consequences are obvious, and you've been hearing about some of them this evening. Sometimes they are somewhat more hidden. I'm intrigued, for example, by the brain science studies which show the range of the costs of thinking that is influenced by loss aversion and insecurity, where the power to be creative and innovative, for instance, dramatically loses ground to an attachment to the status quo. Given the economic, political, and social challenges of the 21st century, we need as much creativity as we can get, and we're not getting much of it. Obvious or not, however, the consequences are real and sometimes terrible, and we need to talk about them in these after Snowden times. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Ron. Um, we've got about half an hour for Q&A. There are mics in the room, so if you raise your hands nice and clearly, um, I'll get someone to come round to you. I'm just going to kick off with one panel. We'll take it two or three together. Um, Gus, I think you mentioned you know, the idea that previously, to be secret, all you had to do was go into the corner of the bar and whisper. To what extent is a lot of this problem the fact that we're all going around shouting now, right? You know, because you know, we have these devices, different modes of communication, and we just use them, and we don't think about, you know, the privacy implications and, you know, 
the data that we're putting online. So, so what extent in this sort of kind of conversation, is this a conversation about the public and individuals looking at themselves actually about how they're behaving? Because you wouldn't go and shout your bank details in the corner of a pub, right? You know, so why do we do it um, online? So that's a kickoff. But we have one down here. Take two down there to start then. Um, this, this man's suit. Okay. You can identify yourselves. Uh, my name is Alan West. Uh, I'm a sailor. I was also security minister for three years and uh, chief of defense intelligence for three years and director of naval intelligence for three years. Um, thank you very much indeed. I thought that was absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinating. Um, I think the fourth unintended consequence, I hope it was unintended, um, uh, Professor Diebert, was uh, of giving away uh, methods that actually mean now we are all less safe than we were before. It is quite clear that terrorists are now doing things to avoid us being able to monitor what they're doing, and inevitably it will mean that there will be people who die because of it. One can say that actually the numbers who die are tiny, and maybe that's uh, well, I, you know, several thousand or something overall around the world globe. Maybe that doesn't matter in context of people's privacy and things, but that is an unintended consequence. And it, it is ironic, I think, that he's actually hiding in uh, that, that sort of paragon of privacy, the state, uh, Russia, which is such a wonderful place where, when I used to go there years ago, when you were in great danger, on every floor there was someone who sat there monitoring your movements, etc., etc., etc. I find that quite interesting. But my questions really are for Dr. Hussain. There are two, two questions, really. Clearly, you gave lots of examples of, of mass collection. Does this mean that you disagree with the latest judge's judgment and the court judgment that we are not in involved in mass surveillance but actually targeted surveillance. Um, and my other question is, do you believe that there should actually be areas of the communications world which are safe from law enforcement? I will give one example when I was Chief of Defense Intelligence where because we happened, GCHQ had been asked by NSA to go over and look at various, where they were looking at various things in America, we happened to spot when someone thought it would be great fun to change over all the blood groups in a mass of American hospitals. <coughs> Luckily, actually, that was spotted, um, or else there would have been hundreds killed the following day in operations and things. Um, so I think dark spaces can be, uh, can be extremely dangerous. And the halcyon days of the past, um, we, I think we've done rather better than we used to. The SIS were not avowed. We didn't actually say we had an SIS. We didn't say we did some of these secret things. And of course, in the final analysis, the reason these agencies are called secret is because they do secret things. People don't like things being secret nowadays, but I believe perhaps there should have to be some things that are secret. Just pass it along to the gentleman there. Thank you. <coughs> Paul McGrail, uh, Catholic Workers Group. Uh, my question touches on three points, two quantitative, one qualitative. Firstly, the, the sheer amount of data that um, People, the, the intelligent agencies seem to want. Uh, touching on Professor Prusin's point, this, ap this inexorable appetite. Someone said recently, apropos David Cameron's proposals, um, the last thing you want if you're looking for a needle in a haystack is more hay. Um, <laughs> so, so the second question deals with the resources required. Uh, Matthew Connerly, the a visiting professor at this institution mentioned in a section lecture there are more than a dozen U.S. agencies competing with each other for the accumulation of data. Uh, where will this end? Lastly, uh, <clears throat> dealing with the personnel, 
Edward Snowden was a contractor, the, the, both this country and uh, America, particularly America, have the, the need to outsource uh, to contra private contractors the, the continuing war on cybersecurity. Uh, the more people you have, the less secure any intelligence establishment becomes. Great. Um, let's go in the order that we started, Ron. Sure. Um, well, great questions and comments. I, I think, you know, the, what we're talking about here is, is really, the way I think about it is a discussion around whether we need a, a, a new type of social contract, given the, the era that we live in, and what would that look like? What would it entail? It's, uh, essentially, there's a discussion for societies that, that live in, in a liberal democratic system. And I think it's really interesting when you start unpacking some of the practical components of that. Uh, I'm struck, for example, by uh, the remark that David said, and I've seen it borne out in, in the slides and, and some of the disclosures, about wholesale collection of all of this data. Um, and the definition of that not being surveillance... Uh, until an analyst actually begins the targeting process. Well, that, that's an interesting question that we can have as a society and say, well, is this, is this the appropriate balance that we need to strike in order to, as we all would probably agree, have law enforcement do their job, have intelligence agencies do their job? When you get further into the details of that, there are some really interesting quagmires that you can get into. How is that done then? Is it... Uh, uh, the government putting in place splitters at fiber optic cables or is it them going to the companies and saying you need to put in place some mechanism to uh, ensure that we can get access to the communications, in other words, weaken the security of the protocols, uh, which then have uh, ripple-on effects for all of our security, as Gus is talking about. Or does it? are we talking about exploiting vulnerabilities or creating some kind of insecurity by design? And then lastly, think about where is the data store? You're talking about the volume of it. Well, you know, this extraordinary volume of data, as, as this, look at the disclosures that talk about volume, you know, billions of metadata records a day. This is why uh, the agencies have to create these enormous centers of data warehousing. Well, I think it's a fair question to ask just purely on a practical level. How is that data secured? Uh, how is it stored? What are the risks around centralizing a lot of this information in the state from just a purely practical security point of view. Keep in mind that the NSA, probably until this very day, still has no idea exactly how many documents Snowden stole, as if you want to use that language. Um, that, to me, is, is actually frightening. And, and we put it in the context also of all of these companies that have uh, been breached in, in recent times, M major breaches of, of data. So that there's a fair argument that would say, look, we should actually minimize data collection in order to enhance, enhance general security. And a counter-argument might, for law enforcement intelligence, might say, well, there has to be some rooms, to use the, the metaphor, that you can't get into, but that's balanced off. That has to be weighed against the volume of data unprecedented in human history that leaks out by our own admission, by our own habits now, uh, that is available for anyone, any agency of the state to gather and systematically analyze. So is it worth it to then weaken a fundamental aspect of everyone's security in order to get that little bit more when you have access to extraordinary volumes of data already in the ether of the cyber domain that we're producing on a daily basis. Um, the last thing I'll say about 
about this question is the balance between offense and defense, I think, has to be part of this equation. Um, I think most people in the room, most reasonable people would agree that you need to have armed forces and law enforcement and intelligence agencies as part of a liberal democratic society. It's a harsh world that we live in. And we'd probably also agree that armed forces have to be well-equipped. They have to be able to break into things, maybe even destroy things. And the way you do it these days is through cyber means, through digital warfare. But do we want those same agencies to take precedence and prominence over security of society as a whole? And again, that's not a conversation that we've had, yet these agencies that are really relics of the Cold War, if you want to use that language, where they're born in the Cold War, signals intelligence agents operating in the shadows as an appendage to the warfighting units of the state, have now taken on a position of prominence over security of all of society's infrastructure. There's a confusion there, a split personality, and I, I personally believe those missions need to be separated. They aren't in the United States. I don't think they, they are here, and I don't think they are in my own country. And we haven't had that conversation as a society yet. An observation, first of all, is that this conversation is falling into the trap that I feared it would, which is only focusing on one of my three dimensions. I've heard absolutely nothing that helps with my second set of problems, which was about law enforcement, or my third set, which is how we support our armed forces. So at some point, we've got to come back and work out how we're going to balance all three. The, the question about volume, again, we're still falling into the category error of confusing access by computer in order to find material for analysis by human beings. The, uh, my bank has an audit system that examines every one of my financial transactions and occasionally emails me to say, were you in Stockholm, did you really buy a herring last Wednesday? If I type back Y for yes, no human being knows that transaction took place. If I type back no, it goes to a human being in the bank because it's probably fraud. Somebody's cloned my card. Do I worry that the bank's computers are looking at my most intimate detail? No, I don't. I get a benefit. The bank gets a benefit. Do I worry that GCHQ's computers are whizzing through my data, looking for somebody else's data that they have reason to suspect they ought to look at no, I don't. So there's almost a philosophical question we, we need uh, to address there. The, there's a rather glib point about more hay, less hay. Why would you want more hay? The agencies certainly don't want more hay. They want the right hay, and there are haystacks at the moment they can't get near. And that's what they, the arguments about the data bill are really about. Can you actually... Uh, get the companies to retain data. In other words, create some hay in which they know there will be needles to extend that, that uh, uh, analogy. I mean, Gus, you can easily make fun of GCHQ. You can talk about the collect it all. Actually, to an insider, that means something very different. It means we're in a global packet switch network where every email, every Skype conversation is chunked up into packets and those packets go around the world in different routes. And if you want to reassemble the communications of your target, you've got to have some pretty broad access. And uh, I quite understand why they say that. You can also make fun of GCHQ's uh, 
uh, fondness for cricket, but you know and I know. They're not asking questions about cricket. That's an example to illustrate the fact you can ask conditional questions. And you can say, after the bomb goes off, I want to know who telephoned from the immediate vicinity of the radio-controlled bomb. I want to know which mobile phones were active. And you can layer these. And then you might end up with half a dozen suspects to investigate by old-fashioned methods. Finally, on offense, defense. Go on the Microsoft website or the Apple website and look at the list of defects that have been software problems that have been reported to them and zero-day defects which have to be fixed. And they encourage, indeed they pay sometimes if you, if you report uh, a flaw. You will find large numbers of those are reported by GCHQ, by their security arm CESG, because GCHQ has found flaws in software that is essential for the running of society, and it wants it fixed. So don't run away with the idea that it's all offense. Yes. The quest for a, a metaphor uh, for uh, every pub conversation or whatnot is, is, is a quest down a hole that you'll never come back out of. So what I, what I would go back to is what uh, Ron started off with by saying, which is there's the information that you choose to admit, it is the, I've posted something on Facebook, I, I, I've tweeted something. And then there's the information that's generated without your knowledge. It is the log information. It's the fact that your mobile phone transmits your location at this very moment. Um, and, every, and this is actually stored by your telco for about a year in this country. Um, that information is the information they're using more than anything else. And that's the information you have no control over. Um, so, yeah, we, we can talk about how people are communicating more and possibly posting things publicly more. I think people are actually communicating with their friends and their networks more, but we've been doing that throughout time. What is different now is that back in the 1940s or 50s, it was not possible to know the names of everybody that you've had coffee with in a, in a cafe. Now it is possible to know that. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Lord West is here. Um, Lord West... When he was minister back in 2009, tried to convince his colleagues to introduce policy that would uh, legislate the exact powers that Snowden ended up disclosing uh, went ahead and got created. Um, and when the legislation was being considered by his colleagues, they rejected the introduction of the legislation to the floor of the House of Commons. And so the policy was rejected. But nonetheless, thanks to Snowden, we know that. While the policy might have been rejected from being legislated, we know that they went ahead and implemented these programs nonetheless. And these programs are actually in, in place at the time. Regarding the, the, the court that has uh, decided in this country that, uh, according to my colleagues, um, that mass surveillance is okay or that this is not mass surveillance, um, th that case they're referring to is a case that my organization has taken and a number of other organizations have taken. We've taken a number of cases to this special tribunal established by communication surveillance law in this country. That tribunal is not done deciding the full ambit of the case, so I will not discuss it here. But let me just say there are many courts around the world. There are many courts in the United States that have already addressed some of these questions and have decided differently. There are uh, many courts, um, perhaps one even in Europe, that we may uh, seek judgment at at some point down the road. So I don't want to influence, I don't want to comment on that 
specific case at this uh, moment in time. But the final point is, uh, again, the secret room idea, and the, the metaphor is a terrible metaphor because designing software is hard. Designing network technology is very, very hard. What was proposed in the 1990s and what seems to have somehow resurfaced all over again is that we must design uh, our security in such a way that there are two keys. There's one key that I possess that allows me to get access to my data and nobody else. But we'll make a, a, a different key, a golden key, a secret key that can only be used by the good guys. And those good guys will only use it for good purposes. In the world of computer security, that is impossible. In the world of computer security, what you've introduced are two vulnerabilities, not one where it would normally just be the singular key. It is a nightmare scenario for developing good, solid infrastructure that we require for all levels of society. And so the people who are thinking that we can somehow create fake secret rooms are kidding themselves. It actually... It takes me back to a speech I saw in Israel. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu was giving a talk at a privacy conference, and he said, look, I care about privacy because I see it as a national security issue. That is, individual security and privacy are the exact same thing. Protecting that for the entire nation of Israel is important as a national security idea. That's an idea that I wish Lord West would consider, that I wish other people who work in this sphere would consider, that protecting my personal information, protecting your personal information, should be a national priority as well. And I think David Oman was hinting at yeah. that, and I think we well, agree I on fully that. But that. I worry that the policy solutions that are being floated by that chief cryptographer, David Cameron, down the street from here, that all of a sudden you can create a secret golden key is going to make that all fall apart. I really apart. don't think that's what he's actually suggesting. But in a sense, I could ask, put the question the other way around and say, is there anyone who, as an act of policy, would want to make communication so secure that it, law enforcement might as well give up? Uh, because that's it, as a problem, if you put it that way, the British public very clearly want the law enforcement to have that kind of access to the bad guys. Now, we all know it's actually very difficult to do that, but you can't just say uh, as a blanket uh, assertion uh, that uh, we shouldn't be looking for ways in which the legitimate needs of law enforcement and intelligence cannot be met. And you... Just another point, which is worth really debating, which is network exploitation. Because one of the results of Snowden is that the companies are heavily encrypting end-to-end. -end. That's probably inevitable. It would probably have come anyway, but Snowden has accelerated it. The result is that the intelligence agencies and the police are not going to give up trying to get the bad guys. They've just got to get closer to the bad guys. So what we're actually going to see, I predict is more close access work. Now, you can say that's more targeted, so that fits your, your, uh, your uh, uh, way of thinking. But in terms of intrusion into personal privacy, collateral intrusion into privacy, we're actually likely to be end up in a ethically worse position than we were before. And that's just one of the many paradoxes about this whole Snowden business. We're going to move to, to Ron in Canada. Um, and we just keep this quick, Ron, and we'll fit another round of questions. Absolutely, because the, the, the comments from, and questions from the audience were good, and, and, and clearly 
uh, some, some very insightful remarks from the, uh, from the panelists who were there in person. I would just add one other uh, small uh, observation, again, from someone who's more of a non-expert in this realm, and that is the difficulty I find as someone who studies foreign policy uh, makers in, in particular between sometimes in distinguishing who the good guys and who the bad guys are. Those are, those are overly simplistic categories, uh, and certainly in an American context, given what are serious abuses of power and limits on intelligent policymaking uh, by policymakers at the law enforcement level, David, as well as at the national security level, uh, the limits of abilities on the part of the so-called good guys and the abuses of power by the good guys, the mistakes made by the good guys are worth keeping in mind. In an American context, has to be part, that is, has to be part of the discussion and the conversations. We are not dealing with people who are purely and perfectly rational by any means, who, who we might want to label the good guys. In an American context, we've gone from people like um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover to Dick Cheney uh, to demonstrate the, the seriousness of the challenges confronting the guys who choose to identify themselves as wearing the white hats. Uh, that is no small part of the story and the predicament we face. It doesn't mean there aren't good guys uh, out there, but, uh, but those are not airtight compartments. Okay, thanks, Ron. Right, I'm going to take four quick-fire questions um, to wrap us up. Make them quick, please. Lady down here, gentleman in the green shirt up there. To start, yes, please. Jane Wyatt from Future Intelligence. Uh, the murderers at Charlie Hebdo were on a watch list. They were known to the security services. What does that tell us about the value of targeted intelligence? Is it just that the French are no good at it? Or Let's leave do it we there. need a different way of doing it? <laughs> Great, thank you. Uh, gentleman in the green shirt. Um, uh, my name is Thomas Sturck. I'm a PhD student in economics. That's a question for Sir David. Um, thanks a lot for being here. What I'd like to ask uh, here... <laughs> Um, there's a famous saying that everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but not to their own fact. And uh, so I'm from Germany, and in Germany, only 30 years ago, there was mass surveillance sponsored by the state. And um, that's best illustrated when you go into museums of the Stasi archives, and you see that there's a full room, just uh, desks with machines to open letters, read them, and close them again without people knowing. And by then, that was widely, and it's still widely accepted to be mass surveillance. What we have today, though, is that GCHQ and other agencies read through all our emails, all our telephone communications, many more communications, possibly in real time. So if that is not mass surveillance, would you please define what mass surveillance would be for you? Thank you. Great, thanks. Uh, lady in the pink. Um, something that was said earlier reminded me of the concept of double-binding someone, um, putting like a child in a double-bind if we don't kill your puppy, something terrible will happen to your next-door neighbor, and so the kid feels super responsible. And so if, you know, if we're not checking this, bad things may happen to your nation, bad things will happen to the world. And the psychological position that puts people in, I'd like to hear some discussion about the, just the psychological stress of, of a, entire cultures, because that seems a way, a way to control a child a way to control a culture, a way to control a population, is by making them doing stuff that's, that's crazy-making. Great. And um, the lady in the blue. Thank you. 
Hi, yes. Um, this is a question really, or sorry, an observation and then a question for the panel. Um, it's very easy to scare people into thinking that the government are watching every single move um, and tracking everything that they do on the internet. But I can say that one of the inevitable processes of analysing intelligence is a process of elimination. So analysts will need to look at a large data set and go through a process of elimination and they will only go ultimately report on those that um, are of interest. Um, I can say that one of the, the intelligence services are probably one of the best in the world um, from what I've read and also from personal experience. Um, and so I, I think just for um, the panel, I would say that please don't go into scaremongering people um, because I think it's quite far from the truth. Um, we've actually prevented and disrupted numerous plots, as you've probably read in the media lately. So I think we need to give credit to the services um, and maybe cut them some slack on, uh, at, at times. And then the second point I wanted to make was um, there's a lot of discussion. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion on um, law enforcement and the Snowden effect, the impact that it's had on that. But what about on corporate surveillance um, and also on private intelligence companies that collect a lot of um, information and data about people? And there's actually no legislation that covers that. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there. We'll go to Ron first. Um, Ron, maybe a minute or so to sum all this up and then we'll come to the rest of the panel. I know you can't do that, but, you know, give it a go. <laughs> I, I won't even take a minute. I, I think uh, a, lot has, a lot has been said, especially by, uh, by my expert uh, colleagues. So some very interesting observations from, from the audiences as well. I'd, I guess if I were going to, to highlight something, it, it would be the, the theme of questions that has these are difficult questions that we're, uh, we're dealing with, not even remotely possible to, uh, to explore them in the depth they deserve in the space of this uh, hour and a half. Um, and Gus has thought about reviving uh, a, a, a series of, of, of events to, uh, to extend the discussion. Sounds like a really good idea to me. Good. Um, let's start with David, um, <coughs> then go Gus, and then Ron. Very, very quickly, what does the Charlie... Eight Hebdo tell us uh, nothing about this particular subject except from me to say the job of a security and intelligence officer is difficult. Don't make it more difficult. But it tells us nothing about the value or not of, uh, of uh, 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 intercepted communications. Mass surveillance, the answer is GCHQ is not reading or your emails, it would be, even if it wanted to, and it was legal to do so, which it isn't, it would be physically impossible. How many emails are there? A minute? 200 million? Something like that? It just, it don't exaggerate that issue. Uh, but we've all seen the lives of others, and anyone who hasn't seen it should see it, because it is a terrible warning of uh, the need to keep uh, legal constraints. Um, if you knew about the culture of the people in the British security services and intelligence services. Now, you wouldn't worry about making crazy. And, you know, we really should keep this in, in proportion. We should also bear in mind, since the point's been made, the big differences between the United States and the United Kingdom in all sorts of ways. The law is different, the law of interception is different, the culture is different. They got hit by 9-11. We didn't. So just bear those in mind. The uh, 
question about is really, I think, I'd boil it down to this. My three levels, they all have to have some way of satisfying their legitimate requirements. Do not think that in order to protect our privacy, we should deprive our security and intelligence agencies of the tools they need. Just work out mechanisms to make sure that no future government that we might elect could ever misuse them. So focus on the oversight, not on the tools. I'll, I'll pick up exactly where he left off and just say I agree entirely, David, and um, that's why I want us to focus on the laws. That's why I want us to create a legal framework for all of these things. I'm not saying get rid of all these powers. I'm not saying – I'm saying put it under a legal basis. Put it under the rule of law. Let's have the debates that we were having, but let's have, make them mean something in implementation and not develop secret programs on the back of that. Um, I agree. I Just to try to respond to those, those questions – the psychological aspect is fascinating, and PEN America came out with a report recently about how authors are being chilled uh, by surveillance and how they're not willing to do some things online. They're not willing to write some things because of mass surveillance. And I, I do worry about psychological effect, but just to link it to another um, – and, and sorry, and it's going to get worse because, again, it, people think it's about the things that they willingly do, that they willingly post something, that they willingly interact with somebody. It's about the things you have no control over. And so with the big data future, I actually worry about uh, autonomy even more so because everything will be tracked, not just by an intelligence agency, but by industry, <laughs> by every entity out there, including your next-door neighbor. And it will chill action in such a way that have a psychological effect. And just to end on a conciliatory note, and this is a totally a personal opinion, not out of my organization, what I hate about the aftermath of terrorist attacks is that the first political response, whether it's from the media or from commentators um, or from politicians themselves, is to blame the intelligence services. They failed us. The second step, which is just as terrible, is the opportunism that follows. There's a whole media cycle of, of experts who say, oh, we need greater powers, we need this, we need that. There's no time for calm reflection anymore. Where's the 9-11 Commission? the way that it looked at the, what happened over a two-year period and deliberated on a report that analyzed it and then said, these are the policy decisions we have to consider. So uh, Nick, you began the presentation with a quip about Skype and NSA eavesdropping on it and it reminded me of one of uh, the first Citizen Labs reports from way back in 2008 where we found that in China, in order to operate in that country, Skype built in a vulnerability, if you will, so that when anyone typed in a particular keyword, from that point on all of their communications were intercepted and delivered to the Chinese government. The reason I bring that up is we have to be very careful about what we do here because shortly we'll be living in a world determined largely by others and we better make sure our own house is in order, which is why I agree it's not a matter of culture or personalities. I have no doubt that the people in these organizations, many of whom I've met and know personally, have integrity, that they're doing their best job that they can, and they're very patriotic and responsible people. It's not about individuals or culture. It's about checks and balances and oversight, which is why your last point and what Gus said, I think, is precisely what we need to focus on. And actually, it's not even about privacy. It's about the potential for the abuse of power if it's left unchecked. 
We need to have that conversation in an entirely new context now. The world of big data is not going away, nor is the world of big states. But we haven't yet thought through how to govern ourselves in that new environment. Thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you, everyone in the audience. Sorry that we can fit all the questions in. Do please continue the conversation on Twitter, as I think we've all mentioned. We've only just really started it again uh, here today. So please thank the panel uh, loudly enough to reach the